You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Timothy McDonald, MD, JD, Professor of Anesthesiology and Executive Director, Institute for Patient Safety Excellence at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Chicago, Illinois. Today we're going to discuss the power of apology and communication. Dr. Timothy McDonald, you have developed a multidisciplinary model called Patient Communication Consult Service. Could you tell us about it? Certainly. We created the Patient Communication Consult Service as a way to improve communication with patients and their families following unexpected adverse events. This is sort of a modification of a program that some may have heard of out there called Sorry Works or uh, the apology programs. How is it modified? What is different about it? Well, when we first were beginning to look at a full disclosure program at the University of Illinois, originally we were going to be focusing on making certain that when a clear error had harmed a patient, that we would be in a position to meet with them and apologize for the error that we had made and the harm it had caused the patient or, in the case of telling the family, their loved one. When we were going through this process, we recognized the need for better communication following all unexpected adverse events versus just those that involve clear medical error. And that, unfortunately, what happens sometimes in medicine is when bad things happen to patients, the care providers often step back or they get very hesitant or very concerned about having ongoing clear communication with some of those patients or families. I know even some states like Oklahoma has introduced a bill saying it's called the I'm Sorry Bill, stating that if a physician uses I'm sorry in his discourse with a patient, whether it involves an error or just a result that was unexpected, this cannot be used against him in any type of litigation. How would you respond to that? We've recently done some work looking at the legislation in in all the states, but there are actually about 29 states that have similar legislation that's been passed. In fact, even in the state of Illinois, they also have, as part of tort reform, an apology subsection to those laws. And again, what it states is, is that provided that the apology occurs within a certain time frame, it can't be used against a particular person in court. I actually look at that a couple of different ways. One is I think that it provides some assurances and perhaps some confidence for physicians and other care providers to communicate more openly to their patients. However, I must say that we are prepared in the position here at the University of Illinois that in the event that a case was ever to go to trial, because we couldn't agree on the amount of damages to pay, I would actually prefer, as a physician attorney, I would prefer the apology to actually come in. I would want the jury to know that we admitted the fact that we had made an error and we did everything we could to to make it up to the patient and to prevent it happening in the future. There's some interesting developments with apology laws and the impact that they're going to have on an ongoing basis with disclosure programs. When an error is disclosed, though, what are some of the other elements other than an apology that are involved in your consultation? There's actually been a fair amount of research and literature published on that in terms of what it is that patients and families expect. And in addition to the apology, it's also a description in layperson's terms to the patient, really what it is that happened and what was the error. And then how that error 
caused harm to them and whether or not it will have any permanent issues related to the air, permanent harm or future harm that may occur because of a mishap or mistake or, or an error in their, in their medical care. In addition to that, patients are often also very interested, as their families are, in what is it that the physician or the institution is going to do to prevent subsequent similar errors. And then finally, and Rosemary Gibson has used this term, um, and she wrote the book called Wall of Silence, about our our resistance sometimes to communicate errors. Rosemary Gibson talks about the, the importance of providing some sort of benevolent gesture to the patient or family who's been harmed by the error. Examples of benevolent gestures would be to waive the hospital bill in the case of an error that has occurred. In addition to providing you know, some sort of compensation to the family if it is something as simple as uh, child care or transportation to and from the hospital, and then, of course, in some cases, in very, very serious errors, the pain and suffering that, that may go along with the error that, that's caused harm, and ongoing medical care that may result. And those are all the kinds of things that, when you have and begin these kinds of communications with patients and family, are important to speak about. What do you do about what we would call a near miss? Do you disclose those with a family? Our particular policy here is that unless there's been some harm that the patient has suffered, even if it's financial harm. In other words, if if we've made an error that caused us to do more tests, then that would also fall into the category of something that we would disclose. So if there's any sort of harm to the patient, whether it be financial or psychological or, or physical harm that's occurred, we would disclose that. But for a near miss that never makes it to the patient, we actually do not, in most circumstances, go out of our way to disclose that to patients. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Timothy McDonald, and we're discussing the power of apology and communication. How about if there is an outcome that hasn't really been covered at the time of consent? Do you also deal with this kind of issue? Our sort of algorithm that we follow is that when there is an unexpected adverse event, yes, we do try to the extent we can facilitate a communication about that. So there is the expectation that even if, if an outcome you know, wasn't discussed in the informed consent, that is something that, that we would expect a physician or somebody within the organization to communicate with the family about. Because almost necessarily, if it wasn't discussed in the, in the consent and it is an adverse outcome, it's, it's unexpected. In other words, neither the physician thought to discuss it with the patient or family, and there's certainly the possibility the patient and the family weren't weren't expecting that particular outcome. So even if there was no error involved, we do our best through our patient communication consult service to engage that family to explain to them what it is that happened and why it happened and any other facts that they would find you know pertinent to discuss with them. When I was in medical school, we always talked about the R's, recognition, regret, responsibility, and remedy. When you have a consultation, what's the process that takes place? You get a phone call, and what type of disciplines become involved in meeting this situation? It always begins, and this is the key to any organization or even a physician's office that's going to have a robust communication process with their patients. It all begins with reporting. 
That is, is to whatever extent possible, the adverse outcome is reported to people within the organization or the physician's office who can deal with the subsequent steps that occur. So in our case, there are many ways that those reports are, are transmitted to the Department of Safety and Risk Management. We have online reporting. Often we may get phone calls. We may have people visit us and let us know that an error has occurred. And the value in letting our department know that the unexpected event has occurred is that we're able to convene a rapid investigation team that is made up of content experts in whatever areas involved in the error who are able to review and do what we call a root cause analysis to determine the cause or causes for that unexpected outcome and also to make a determination as to whether an error occurred, a clear error occurred, something that we would consider as what one might call as, as simple negligence occurred in terms of preparing for the discussion we would have with patients and their families. In addition to that, the value of convening this, this team of people together that includes the content experts, we also have people who are trained in quality and process improvement so that, again, we can begin to look at if it was a preventable error, what are we going to do in the future to try to prevent those things? Because, again, that's something that the patients and families are going to want to know. So you think the families are interested in how the system will change because of their particular error? Yes, I would say that certainly is true. A common theme that we encounter in, in almost all of our consults where we are called into involves at some point or another in the conversation, someone, again, either the patient or, or one of their family members asks, well, what is it that you're going to do to keep this from happening again? You know, we all have heard stories of a patient turning to the junior medical clerk and saying, what test should I have or should I have this operation? Because this is the particular part of the team that the patient may identify with and has developed a relationship. In this situation and scenario, who becomes the point person that deals with the patient and the family? We try to identify the person who has the closest relationship to the patient or family as the point person who will lead or certainly be present and participate in the communication. And from that point, we take it on a case-by-case basis in that if it's a complicated case that involves a lot of other care providers with content knowledge beyond that of the, say, junior physician who's involved, we'll have them present for the meeting as well so they can answer some of those complicated questions. That way, the more junior person who may not have the content knowledge isn't stuck in the position of not being completely certain of the answers of the questions that the patient or family may ask. You know, you brought up just recently risk management. When do they become involved and who deals with possible financial compensation? At the University of Illinois, our Department of Patient Safety and Risk Management are merged into one group. And Again, our focus is not on the financial, from a risk management perspective, our focus is not on the financial compensation to the family, so much as managing ongoing harm to the patient and and putting preventive measures into place. When financial issues come up, part of our team includes, in our hospital, what's called claims management, which is sort of managed by the legal counsel office, and they're the ones that have access to the self-insurance fund, as well as have communication with the excess malpractice carriers. And whenever issues come up where there's been harm to the patient that may need to be addressed by going beyond just waiving hospital bills, we then refer that patient or the family to our claims management folks. 
whose job, again, it is to, to do what's necessary to make patients whole after a clear error has harmed a patient or their loved one. So when this issue is brought up by the patients during our consult, our communication with them is very clear in that our job is to make sure that the patient continues to get ongoing compassion and appropriate care and that ongoing communication about what's happened, but the financial issues will be dealt by a whole other entity. And that way we're not mixing the financial pieces with the clinical care issues. And that's why, again, we pass on the, uh, the financial issues to a whole other group that's part of our team. I'd like to thank Dr. Timothy McDonald for being our guest today. And we've been discussing the power of apology and communication. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.